You're listening to audio from City Light South Church. If you'd like to check out more resources and find ways to get involved, go to citylightsouth.org.au. Welcome again to our gathering here at City Light South. It's so good to see all of you. Just got a few notices to bring our way before we get into the message for this morning. We've been journeying through 1 Peter. We're back in 1 Peter chapter 4. Uh, this morning, we've, just, we've got three more weeks in this series. It's been awesome. Um, life series. We talked about this last week. I am so excited about this. This is going to be starting on the 20th of August. 20th of August, we've got six weeks of a, on Sunday evenings, six Sunday evenings. We're just working on locking in the venue, and we'll let you know as soon as we know. But it's going to be six weeks in a row where we, you get a chance to come along and hear about Jesus. And you have a chance to invite people that you know, people in your family, people in your neighborhood, your workplace, your school, to come along and hear about Jesus too and answer, ask, and have questions answered. Um, it's really a good opportunity. If you've ever done an Alpha course before, anybody who's done an Alpha course or a Christianity Explorer or something like that? Okay. So the live series is similar. It's, it's kind of the setup is very similar to that. Um, the difference is it is put together and organized by a group of Australians for the Australian context. And so it's very much, um, I think it's very relevant to people that we know and, and rub shoulders with every single day. And talking to ch- other churches that have done this um, in the past, they have loved it and found it helpful. Now, like the Alpha series, here's what I think. I think one of the best things to do, we'd love to run this every single year. The first year, I know some of you are going, well, I don't really know what it is. I don't know if it's something I'd like to invite my friends to. I'm not sure if it's going to be good or if it's going to be weird. I don't know. Well, if that's you, that's awesome. Come along this year. It is totally free. You can totally, you, you can, you know, you've been a Christian all your life. It's still good. You're still going to get a lot out of it. Come along and then, you know, or, or jump in, join the catering team, help us set it up. So that next time we run it, next year, you'll be like, oh, I know exactly what it is. And you'll feel a lot more comfortable maybe inviting people along. So that's happening August 20th. If you would like to sign up, we need people to volunteer. We need people to volunteer for our catering team, for setup and pack down, and to be table leaders, which is to facilitate some of the discussion. If you would love to help us out with that, we would love to hear from you. All you have to do is go to our website, citylightsouth.com au forward slash life. So it's our main website, forward slash life, and there it will take you straight to the registration form. All right. If you have your Bible now, go ahead and open up to 1 Peter chapter 4. We're going to be walking through the first 11 verses of this chapter. Um, I, I think this journey through 1 Peter has been really rich and relevant, at least has been for me. Because there's so much in this ancient letter that lifts our eyes off our own circumstances and our own narrow world and onto Jesus, which is what we try to do every single week. And I think this letter does that really well. It reminds us that no matter what we're facing right now, no matter how difficult things are, there's a reward that's coming for those who are in Christ. And that is the reward of being with God of being in the presence of God. See, according to Peter, as we saw in chapter 1, if you're a Christian, then you were chosen for this. 
from before you were born, from before the universe existed. You were chosen to be in the presence of God, to be in his family. And because you are chosen, that, that means that in this world that you're in now, there's, there's some difficulties that we face. We are exiles, as Peter calls his original audience. And there's this tension we have of what it means to live in the world and yet be, belong to another world. There's something about your, having your status so radically changed from being ordinary to royal that changes the way you live. As a Christian, you, your status has been elevated to royal son, royal daughter. And that's bigger news than winning the lottery. That's bigger news than being promoted to CEO of some global enterprise. It's huge. It changes everything. But according to Peter, there's more that compels us to live differently than the world around us. There is the example of Christ who we're called to imitate. There's the, the preaching of Christ that lifts him up as the true standard of judgment for any person's life. And then there's the promise of Christ that he is not far away. He is coming soon to usher us in to our reward. In fact, it's the past, it's the present, and it's the future work of Christ that come together to compel us in the exact same way, compel us to live a particular way now. So that on that day when you see him face to face, when you are there in, in front of the angels and your enemies, that your lives, our lives together will be a glorious reflection of Christ himself. So that we might live today, every day, for Christ, no matter what. Believing that when we die, we're not losing anything. In, in Christ, we have everything to gain. Now, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to walk through this part of chapter 4 just one section at a time. So would you, you join me as we pray together? Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that we can have hope in the reward that's coming. And it's because of the future coming of Christ. It's the future reward, the future inheritance that we have to look forward to that changes everything about how we live in our ordinary, everyday lives now. Help us to see and understand that. Lord, just open our ears, open our hearts, Lord, that we might be changed, that we might be challenged, that we might be encouraged. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I'm, I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. I'm going to read just the first four verses now of 1 Peter chapter 4. Peter writes, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same understanding, because the one who suffers in the flesh is finished with sin in order to live the remaining time in the flesh, no longer for human desires, but for God's will. For there's already been enough time spent in doing what the Gentiles choose to do, carrying on in unrestrained behavior, evil desires, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and lawless idolatry. They are surprised that you don't join them in the flood of wild living, and they slander you. So right here in chapter 4, we're back into this tension. The tension that we face of being royal sons and daughters living in a world that is not uh, royal, living in a world that is not in love with Jesus. And this first point of the message today is not really new. It's, it's in many ways just restating what Tyson shared with us last week, and that is the sufferings of Christ 
are an example to us and an encouragement to us to endure our own suffering. And I want to clarify, I need to clarify right up front what kind of suffering I'm talking about, because this is not just any suffering. This is intentionally chosen suffering, and that's important. There's a lot of suffering that we don't choose. It just comes to us. Things like sickness or, or, or job loss or, you know, that kind of suffering is unavoidable. It happens to everyone. But Peter here is talking about suffering that is avoidable. Suffering that is avoidable yet chosen. Let me give you an example or a couple of examples of this suffering that we might choose for Christ um, in 2023. So I want you to raise your hand. I know you all love this. But raise your hand if in 2023 you have more disposable income than you did two years ago. Okay, let the record show zero people raise their hands. Oh, one person, one person. What job? I want to know your job. Okay, no. Like, if, if, if you could sort of choose the economic climate to live in, whether it's this year or two years ago, I think most people would have chosen uh, two years ago. Everything now is more expensive than it was a month ago. And so it would be easy in many ways to, to go, you know what? This is, God understands how tight everything is right now. It would be easy to stop being generous, right? It would be easy. It's hard to choose intentionally to continue to be generous, to continue to invest, to sow into the spread of the gospel, or to, to be generous to those who have more needs than we do. Like if you were, if you pull back just a little bit, you know, and you think, oh, I could have just a few more feathers in my own pillow. I could rest easier at night. And yet in Christ, to intentionally choose to be generous when things are tight, that is what Peter's talking about here. It is intentionally chosen suffering for the sake of Christ. It's motivated by the example of Christ, the preaching of Christ, and the promises of Christ. Let me give you another example. Every year, I don't know if you've noticed this, but our neighbors, your neighbors, are generally less impressed with the historic Christian teaching, particularly around sex and marriage. So in this climate, you could avoid a lot of grief. You could avoid a lot of suffering by never talking about it. Or by just hanging out with people who agree with you. Only hanging out with other Christians. And just not rubbing shoulders with people who will ever challenge you or question you. Or you could, for the sake of Christ intentionally place yourself in your school, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, in your family, in such a way that you will get those hard questions. Not because you're looking for a fight. Not because you're rude and you just like to, you know, argue with people. But because you're a human being created in God's image, living alongside other human beings created in God's image who need the hope that you have. And so you choose to suffer. Like, think about a conversation you might have with somebody, and it comes up, that fact that, that you have intentionally chosen not to partake in certain things. Not to partake in, 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 in watching things which are sexually explicit, for example. And some people in the world today would think, that's really weird. In fact, man, who do you think you are? Do you think you're better than me? Like, those conversations can be uncomfortable sometimes. 
And yet we choose that, we endure that, not because we have a savior complex that we think we can save people with our holy example, but because this is the kind of thing that Jesus did. He lived his life in public view. He, He wasn't hiding. He wasn't only hanging out with people that were like him and that would tell him what he wanted to hear. He lived humbly and confidently among all kinds of people, sometimes people who are violently opposed to him. It's intentionally chosen suffering for the sake of Christ. So let's look at verse 1. It starts with a therefore. And so that connects this passage to the end of chapter 3. If you go back and look at chapter 3, the truth that Peter leaves us there with is that Christ suffered in his death but is now triumphant. He's now at the right hand of God with all of the angels, all of the spirit realm submitted to him. That's the end of chapter 3. He's been lifted up to glory and honor and power. Now, therefore, since Christ suffered before all of that, he suffered before he was glorified, now you choose to arm yourselves with the same mindset. Arm yourselves. It's military language, right? Arm yourselves with that intentional willingness to go there, to suffer, to deny yourself for the sake of Christ, for the glory that is coming in your future. Peter's saying to you and me, he says, put your uniform on. Get in the game, just like Jesus did. Don't run away from these tough choices, the kind of suffering that shows the world who we really are and what we really value. Intentional suffering communicates a kind of message. It's, a, it's like a signal beacon, in a way. Like, you know, the flashing hazard lights on your car announcing that sin is no longer in the driver's seat of your life. He says the one who suffers is finished with sin. It communicates something. So if you're choosing to go back to our early example to be generous with your time and money, even though everything is tight and expensive, even though it's somewhat uncomfortable. That is a sign. It's a signal beacon that your hope, your security is not in things. It's not in having a big balance in your savings account, but it's in the Lord. It communicates exactly what Peter says in verse 2, that in the limited time you have left in this life with limited resources, that you're not living to please yourself like everyone else but you're living to please God. And that is a signal beacon flashing to everyone who's listening. Some people may like it, others not so much. Chosen suffering is not only like a signal beacon, it's a bit like smoke from a fire. And you know, for some people in some settings, the smell of smoke brings up kind of warm memories of, you know, marshmallows around the campfire and warm feelings But in a different setting, that same smoke can bring feelings of fear and anxiety. It's the alarm bells literally flashing and going off. And, and, And so sometimes our choices to live like Jesus can have the same effect. To some people, it can be quite compelling and inviting and draw people in to Jesus. And for others, it can be very off putting and even scary. So the question now is. How do we endure? How do we keep choosing to follow Jesus so that we shine in the darkness, so that we give off smoke in the right kind, in, in, the, in the right way to those who are being drawn to him? How do we keep, how do we endure? 
The key, Peter says, is to be armed with the understanding of Christ. And we see it in verse 2. Christ lived as a man who knew that his time was short. His public ministry, if you know this, lasted only three years. There was one time, if you know the story, it's in John chapter 9, where Jesus was walking and traveling with his disciples, and he, and he passes on the road a, a man who was born blind. And his disciples see him, and they're like, Hey, Jesus, why do you think this guy was blind? Is he a sinner? Is he like really, did he do something really bad? Or maybe his parents did something really bad? Like, is that why he's blind? Tell us. And Jesus says, no. Neither, neither hypothesis is correct. In fact, this man was born in the way that he was and is so that the work of God would be displayed in his life. So that the work of God might be displayed in his life. And then Jesus goes on to say this. This is John chapter 9, verses 3 and 4. He says, we must do, we must do the works of him who sent me while it's day. Night's coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is telling his disciples and he's telling you and me, you can only work when the sun's up. You know, back in the day, there was no electricity. When the sun goes down, that's it. You can't work in the pitch black. We've still got health. Most of you, if you're here, you were able to get out of bed and you're here. You've still got opportunity. And time is short because you don't know. You, you don't know what tomorrow holds. So every day for Jesus, it was this conscious decision to resist the devil and do the will of God. See, like Jesus, you are created for good works. And, and you've got time. You've got opportunity right now to be that light, to be that signal beacon, to be that smoke signal, to give off the, the aroma of Christ. But that time is short. So don't wait. Don't slide back into living like the Gentiles, just this unrestrained chasing every lust and desire. See, an hour spent doing the work of God is so worth it eternally. And an hour spent living like the Gentiles, it's an hour too many. Instead of the ethic of this world, the values of this world, you only live once, so just live it up. Do experience it all. Do it all, no matter what. Let's blow our money in on, on some experience that we can't really afford. Instead, let's look to Jesus and dig deep to see the gospel change our own lives and the lives of others who are languishing and need him. Stop living for the gospel of self-care and self-indulgence, and hold on to the gospel of Jesus who cares for you so much that every minute that you spend resisting sin, every minute that you spend intentionally suffering for him is the road to joy. It brings you one step closer, one step closer to that joy that will never, ever end or disappoint. All right, let's move on to verse 5. It says, They will give an account to the one who stands ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was also preached to those who are now dead, so that although they may be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. So the example of Christ compels us to endure suffering. And moving further, it's the preaching of Christ, the preaching of his gospel, that compels us to live for him in the present. 
The preaching of Christ and his gospel is what compels us and enables us to live well. Verse 5 just picks up on what verse 4 is about. They're, they, and this is the people who slander you or don't like you or give you the side eye because you've made these intentional choices to resist sin and endure suffering like Jesus. Peter says, don't forget that they will give an account to God. They will. It doesn't seem like it now. It seems like everything's going right for them now, but they will one day give an account. Uh, one of the slanders that these folks would throw at Christians in the early days was this. He said, hang on. Didn't Jesus, when he was alive, promise his followers eternal life? Then, then why is it that these Christians are dying? Why are there Christian graves? Because if, if, if eternal life is real, if the one who believes in him will not die but have eternal life, why are Christians dying? That's one of the things that they were saying, challenging Christians with and slandering them with. I mean, wait a minute. Jesus, who promised eternal life, didn't he die like a criminal on a cross? Really? Surely this can't be true. Surely this is all just some sad hoax. Where is this eternal life that you speak of? Well, Peter has an answer. It's in verse 6. He tells us the reason the gospel was preached, he says, to the dead. Now, just a word of interpretation here, because some people do some funny things with this verse. When he's talking about the dead, preaching to the dead, here's who he's talking about. He's talking about Christians who were formerly alive, and we preached the church, the apostles preached the gospel to them, and then they died. That's who he's talking about, these Christians who are now buried in the ground. He's not talking about the dead as in all dead people everywhere of all time that Jesus went and preached into the spirit realm and preached to them. Some people have read that into this verse, but that's not from the context. That's not what it means. These are Christians who were, had formerly believed the gospel and then died. Now, Peter says that the gospel was preached to these believers who've now died and they are now alive. Even now, being dead, they are alive in the spirit. At this very moment, any believer who has gone to be with Jesus, who is now dead, is more alive than you and I in the presence of God. And the word to the mockers is this. You can look to those graves and judge them as failures. But one day, you also will face judgment. You will die. You will give an account for your mocking. And so you're punching down on believers who have chosen the way of Jesus will be part of that judgment. See, part of the gospel, part of the good news that we sometimes leave out is that one day all evil will be judged. And that's actually good news. It, it, it really is because all of us have suffered in some way because of sin. And all sin, all evil will be judged. That's why Jesus went to the cross. And so if you ever find yourself tempted to leave and abandon Jesus, even for just a little bit of fun, Remember that the, the fun that the world sells now will be the subject of judgment for every person. So it's not worth it. Peter's saying, don't fear the people who are mocking. Don't fear the slanderers, people who laugh or roll their eyes. Fear the ones who will judge the living and the dead. And know that if you remain in Christ, you also will enter into eternal joy. The preaching of Christ, the gospel of Christ, compels us to live for him now. 
in light of what's coming, but also in light of who we already are right now. Verse 6, Peter draws this contrast between being judged by human standards and being judged by God's standards. Now, let me tell you this. What's the difference between human standards and God's standards? It's not that humans have, are, are, are this moral and this good and this righteous, and God is just a little bit more good, a little bit more moral, a little bit more righteous. I think a lot of people think that's how religion works, but it's not. See, the standard of Christ, God's standards, is the person of Christ. It's not just a set of better rules, but it's a person. Judgment that he's talking about here is not the final judgment of God on our lives after we die. It's the judgment of comparison. I, I don't know about you, but I, I sometimes struggle with that. I, I sometimes struggle at looking at other people and go, God, why does that person get that? Why do they have a bigger piece of pie than, than me? And, 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 and it can be a struggle. It can ca- cause our faith in God to waver. And this is not like, If that's you, if you've ever been there, it's not because you're abnormal or particularly unrighteous. You're a very normal human being. In fact, we see this in the Bible. Psalm 73, if you've ever spent time reading it, um, is all about this. It's all about a strong, solid, mature believer in God who's struggling with this comparison. He's looking around and seeing these evil people who hate God, and they are rich and getting richer. They're having fun. They're not missing out. They've got all the good stuff. And it's, he, he writes, he says, For I envied the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have an easy time until they die, and their bodies are well fed. God, what is up? Have you forgotten me? This isn't fair. Their lives are better now. I mean, and we're all going to the same place anyway. We all end up in the ground when it's our time. So why sacrifice now? to be generous? Why not just spend all our money and time on ourselves? Why miss out on the freedom of the lifestyle that our neighbors have and get to enjoy? Why keep resisting sin if if it means missing out on being in someone's inner circle or getting that job opportunity or, or being in control of my reputation? Why? See, comparison, though, is a, is a death spiral. It's a death spiral that will only ever lead us away from God and toward despair. Because the more you chase after the thing that you think the other, your neighbors have and you don't, the less it will satisfy you. And you'll always have to go for more and more and more and more. It's never enough. And yet, the only measurement that counts here, according to Peter, is the measurement of Christ. Christ is the standard of comparison. And so if you're in Christ, you have his spirit. When God looks at you, he sees Christ, his righteousness. And the more you reflect on that, the more we reflect on that, we preach to ourselves, the more it compels us to stop comparing ourselves to other people and to rest content in his love for us. The more we understand his love and really believe it, the more we actually live to please him, the more we want to do that. Not to earn his love, but because we already have it. The only way I know to win the battle against sin, to keep choosing to suffer like Christ for a little while until we see him, is to keep our eyes just locked on him. To keep preaching Christ and the gospel to yourself and us to one another. And it breaks the cycle of comparison. 
when we remember that every spiritual blessing that is, we already have in Christ. Every bit of fun that you can have in this life is temporary fun. Every bit of luxury is temporary luxury. True, boy, true joy and true beauty is what is waiting for everyone in Christ. True love. And it's that hope that frees us from comparison. It frees us from discontent and despair and compels us to live the, the life of Christ now. Let me just read the last portion of this passage now, starting in verse 7. It's, it's very practical in terms of the living the way of Christ. He says, The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining, just as each one has received a gift. Use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. If anyone speaks, let it be as one who speaks God's words. If anyone serves, let it be from the strength God provides, so that God may be glorified through Jesus Christ in everything. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. All right. Very practical here, Peter is. I've already seen the example of Christ. His finished work compels us to live for Christ in the present. The last section explores the idea of living for Christ, but ties it not just with what he's already done in the past, but ties it to what he will do in the future. He is coming back to set everything right. He's not staying away forever. He's coming back to make everything new, to wipe every tear from our eyes. And that does something for us now. Verse 7 starts with this. He says, the end of all things is near. It's talking about Jesus coming back, the end of history, the dawn of the new creation. But I wonder if you like me in this. If you ever find yourself getting bored of something, um, knowing the end is near keeps you going for just a little bit longer. Um, I don't know if you ever have played board games with a young child. Yeah. Um, I played Snakes and Ladders a few times in my life, and there does come a point in that game where the rules start changing, where the snakes just disappear. I didn't see that. Let's just keep going. There, you know, I would rather lose a game of Monopoly any day of the week, any day, than to let it go for more than about 30 minutes. That's just me. I just can't do it. I'm the person who holds the remote during your favorite show and checks to see how much time is left. That's just, that's me. Knowing the end is near helps me endure. It really does. Peter says in verse 7, it's not just about enduring, though, with gritted teeth. Hiding under the blanket till it's all over. He says, because the end is near, live with your eyes wide open. Don't give in to anything that will take your eyes and focus on Jesus and his kingdom that is coming soon. We'll use another parenting cliche here. Maybe, you know, when you were a kid and you were home by yourself with your siblings and you knew the time that mom or dad was coming back, but then you hear a noise and realize they're home early, what happens? You, you scramble to do the, the chores that you were meant to do or to clean up the mess that you made or to put away the cookies that you ate you weren't supposed to and, you know, hide the evidence. It's a scramble, right? Because we know the end is near. The end is coming, whatever the, that end happens to be. You live with the end in mind. You don't stop working because you know that they're coming soon. And that's what Peter wants for us here. 
to not forget that Jesus is coming. So we're focused. We stay focused. We don't get caught out at the last minute. Peter highlights four areas of our living that are impacted by the reality that Jesus is coming back any minute. It's the way we love, the way we host, the way we serve, and the way we speak. Love, in verse 8, is the paramount virtue. It ought to be constant. Why? Because Jesus' love for you and me is constant. And love is the only is the only virtue that doesn't just happen in spite of sin, but it actually covers over sin. Like, you might not host someone in your home because they've sinned against you, but you can love that person by pointing them gently to Jesus. You might not give money to someone who's betrayed you, but you can love them by helping them find their identity and forgiveness in Jesus. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, He took bread and a cup, like we will in a moment, and he poured out blessing and grace on the very people who would, minutes later, abandon him in his hour of need. John tells us in John 13, at the same time, he loved them to the what? To the end, by washing their feet. So he knew the end was near, and that motivated him not to hide under the blanket, not to feel sorry for himself. It motivated him to love. As the end draws near, instead of thinking so much about how do I need to get my affairs in order and what's my legacy going to be, why not think of how we can just give more, love more like Jesus did? Jesus is coming, and that changes the way we love. And it changes, verse 9, the way we host. Every coffee, every, every meal, every dinner party that we host is a dress rehearsal for the party that we'll have with Jesus in his kingdom where he is the host and we are the guests. That's why it doesn't make sense for Christians to be hospitable and then complain about it and go have a whinge about, oh, I've probably, do you know how many times I've had that person over to my house and how many times I've shouted them for coffee and they've never done it for me? We can do that. I can do that. It's, it's human, right? But we can host people who will never be able to host us, who will never be able to repay us because we are hosted by the Lord who came not to be served but to serve the Lord who washes our feet. Jesus is coming. It changes the way we love. It changes the way we host. It changes the way we serve. See, the way we use the gifts that God gave us because like Jesus taught in the parable of the talents, every Christian, you, if you're a Christian, you have at least one gift that you've been given by the Holy Spirit and you will answer to God one day for how you use that gift. Did you invest it to see more people come to love and worship Jesus or did you bury it? And refuse to use it because it's too costly. Because it's too much about putting yourself out there and not getting the credit for it. Are you banking on having enough time to feather your own nest as you get older? Or do you believe that the end of all things is near? So you're using the gift that you've been given. Like, if if you die and never get to go on that dream holiday to Europe, but you had the chance to invest in the life of a child, through compassion or other means, would you regret it? If you had to give up extra shifts on a Sunday so that you could commit to serving your church family every week, would you regret it in light of Christ's return? You see, what we have, everything from the breath that we breathe to the money in our accounts to the gifts and the talents that we have is a gift. It's a stewardship from God. We didn't earn it. We received it. 
Same thing is true for you know, a person in my position in, in, in paid ministry. You know, this, we, you see this, that it can become, it can go from being a stewardship and a gift to an entitlement. And when that happens, boy, that's when shepherds start biting their sheep because they think they've earned it. And God save me from that kind of arrogance. Remind me that this is you. We are his church and, and he is coming soon. And I will give an account for how I serve you. Did I point you to Jesus and to living water, or did I do this to increase my own influence in the world? In my highest calling and yours, in the few days that we have left together, a few breaths we have left to breathe, a few dollars we have left to spend, our calling is to do everything we can to make God big and ourselves small, to make Jesus big. Whether you, whether you speak formally or informally, you know, like thing, you know, counseling, teaching, advising, encouraging, correcting, making small talk. These are all forms of speaking. Whatever it is, you speak as a representative of God who gave you your vocal cords and the ability to speak at all. Whether you serve or speak as a volunteer or you work for pay, you serve as a steward of a life and the ability and opportunity from God that he's given you enabled you to serve at all. And when you train yourself to see Jesus as big and coming soon, physically among us, it sets your priorities in order. A bit like hearing mom and dad home early in the driveway, but so much better. Because the future coming of Christ, it compels us to live for him now, for his glory and our gain. Um, a few years ago at a global mission conference, a pastor in America, Thabidian Wile, gave a talk with this compelling title, is just, I think, a nice summary of this passage in 1 Peter 4. It was titled, Hell is Real, Time is Short, Jesus Says Go. It's the idea that a young family, there's lots of young families in this church, the idea that a young family might choose to pack up your house, quit your job, and move to the other side of the world and learn a foreign language and work there, invest there to see churches planted where there are no churches, that only makes sense if Jesus is coming soon. If he's not coming soon, that's ridiculous. He wouldn't do it. But hell is real, time is short, Jesus says go, and if that's true, then people need to know the gospel now. And so a young family going and risking it all on Jesus is worth it. There's an expression for a type of humor that's known as gallows humor. The, the original example of this comes from an Englishman called Samuel Johnson in 1777, and he was writing about a man that he knew who was about to be executed. He was about to be hanged. And he said, when a man knows he's to be hanged, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. It's morbid, but true. So let me paraphrase Samuel Johnson to offer you some gospel hope. When a man or a woman knows that Jesus is coming soon, it concentrates the mind wonderfully. It organizes the pocketbook. It compels us to endure suffering like Jesus endured, with joy, to live for Christ, for his glory and his joy, to be spread to the nations and to our neighbors. Because what else is there here to live for except for the one who died and rose again that you and everyone who believes would live forever? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the hope of the gospel. 
Thank you, Jesus, that you are coming soon. Lord, we ask you to come quickly. Lord, we ask you, not from a place of despair, but from a place of longing. Lord, would you come and set your world right? Would you come and judge sin and evil once and for all? And Lord, because and only because we are covered in the blood of Jesus, would you welcome us into your presence? Would you bring us to God as you promised that you would? We look forward to that day as we come to the table now, Lord. Would you prepare our hearts, increase our joy, increase our longing? We ask that you do this again. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for another message from City Light South Church. You can find out more about our church and connect with us at citylightsouth.org.au.